Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. I'm coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Garland Nixon is off today. For the next two hours, I'm going to explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. According to Politico, a leaked draft of the majority opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization shows the Supreme Court is ready to strike down Roe v. Wade. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to my first guest. She's the principal and founder of TML Communications and business columnist at Metro Philly, Teresa Lundy. As always, Teresa, welcome back. Thank you for having me, doctor. The 1973 Roe v. Wade decision and the 1992 planned Parenthood v. Casey decision established a constitutional right to an abortion until about 24 weeks into a pregnancy or when the fetus is viable outside the womb. It's now being reported, as I said in the open, that a leaked draft of the opinion shows that they're ready to strike down Roe. Before we get into the specifics about the leaking and all this other kind of stuff, just your overall thoughts on where we are with this in the context of our politics. Teresa. Um, so, yes, yeah, where we are currently, look, it's, it's a very difficult time here in the U.S. Um, we've had advocacy groups from Planned Parenthood, from abortion rights activists, um, you know, claiming that it is time for a woman's right to choose. You know, they have been fighting on the front lines to ensure that women um, are able to make decisions on behalf of their bodies. And so where we are, you know, kind of here in the United States is we're in a very unprecedented moment where we are now reversing um, decisions where women's right to choose is um, ultimately about to be dismantled. Um, and conservatives have been, you know, playing uh, this, uh, game of chess with our Supreme Court nominees. Um, we've been, uh, you know, since we had President Trump in office for four years, that's probably the, the worst four years that we could ever endure because in the midst of that, we've had um, a U.S. Supreme Court uh, justice pass away. We've had two getting replaced. Uh, well, one getting replaced and one being appointed. And so um, this has really uh, changed the pendulum of the scale of where we go from here. And, you know, I think this is going to be an ongoing discussion, especially uh, particularly in the Roe v. v. Wade um, decision and how other states are going to react to it. I think that is going to be the biggest charge for each state, each governor, um, each, you know, senator, and each state to really have an understanding of, um, where they want to go? How do they want to make these decisions? Are you going to make people move from state to state um, in order to get an abortion? Or um, are you going to throw people in jail because they did get an abortion? So I think there's so many unprecedented um, uh, constitutional procedures that has happened. Um, and, you know, as a country, we just need to make a decision on how we're going to unite around this issue. Last night's disclosure by Politico of the draft opinion 
that it said was circulated by Justice Samuel Alito represents an extreme breach of modern Supreme Court protocol. Quote, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled, end quote, according to the draft document. First, it's important, I think, for people to understand that it's a it's a I think it's a fair bet that it will be overruled, but that this is a draft document and opinions can change between now and the time that the actual uh, decision by the court or the holding by the court is announced. But are you concerned about this so-called draft uh, being, quote unquote, leaked? Have you heard any particulars about who leaked it and from whence has it come? You know, I'm so glad you you were talking about this. This has been um, another unprecedented moment um, in our history, you know, where um, we are uh, now concerned with the destructive act of leaking a draft from a U.S. Supreme Court opinion. And that is very detrimental um, and destructive. And, you know, it's just an interesting fact that uh, we, 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 there are people bold enough, either on the left or on the right side, that is saying this is such a crucial matter that I'm going to leak a draft, right, With, without care of the consequences, without care of concern. And so, I, you know, I, I was told, I believe in the media, that there is going to be an internal um, independent investigation, but the audacity of this even being leaked for whatever you know, political or, you know, justification that this individual or individuals decided to do is still very concerning. If we keep having these type of uh, issues going on in our country, who knows what is next to come? And that is probably the most uh, um, concerning part. You know, I don't know how difficult, how, how hard it would be. I mean, you've got nine justices. I don't know how many law clerks each justice has, but Oh, I think it's three or four. So let's say it's let's say it's four. That's thirty six people. If you just look at the justices and their clerks, right? We're talking less than forty people on a on an email distribution list. And I don't know how many secretaries or other sundry people are included in this distribution. But your 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 sample size, your population here is incredibly incredibly small. So so be, so being able to track down where this came from shouldn't be that difficult. Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, some some of those, you know, in media are still back to traditional days where this looked like, um, you know, because Politico had the exclusive copy. This looks like it was 98 pages that were printed and, you know, uploaded by Politico. And if that's the case, then somebody, you know, either at home or whoever had the draft was printing out 98 pages and then decided to take a yellow folder to Politico. So those 40 individuals, those staff clerks, those who had possession or even the justices, we don't want to, you know, happen to think the justices right. are leaking it, but we don't know. Uh, but everybody needs to be under uh, investigation. Um, and, and, we're, and I'm actually hoping that we find who the leakers or leaker is. Because we can't have this happen um, to us um, for so long. I yield the floor. What would be interesting to me if, if Jenny Thomas was found to be the leaker based upon, you know, how many times her name has popped up uh, of late and her involvement in the uh, insurrection and all, and all this other stuff. That, that to me would be, would, be, uh, would be incredibly interesting. You know, one thing 
Uh, back in 2010, there, uh, PBS did this piece called God in America. It was a six-part documentary. And the last part is of God and is called of God and Caesar. And it chronicles how evangelicals found their way into the political realm as a result of their uh, of the Roe v. Wade decision. And I, I, I strongly recommend you don't have to sit through and watch the whole six hours, but this last hour, part six called Of God and Caesar, is a very, very interesting uh, documentary on uh, how, again, evangelicals got into politics. Because before Roe v. Wade, many evangelicals saw politics as dirty business, and they, and they, they didn't really want to get involved. But um, evangelicals really didn't want to get involved. But through uh, Pastor Francis Schaefer, who was so appalled at the Roe v. Wade decision, that's what brought a lot of evangelicals into the American political scene in the in the around 1972. And then you've got Jerry Falwell and Ralph Reed and that whole crew. But anyway, it's it's very, very I think it's a very interesting piece. It's called God in America. Go to PBS and you'll find it. Um, so. If, in fact, uh, the court winds up overturning Roe, to, to what you said earlier, it's going to turn to the, na- to the uh, states to, to do this, which I think is only going to make this whole fight even more confusing. I agree. Um, and listen, you know, I, the, the map was very disconcerting that was showing up. Um, on our national media outlets, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. And if you notice the coloring of it in terms of um, how many states are actually going to uh, make abortion illegal, it was a bit daunting. I think we had over, you know, 15 states that said no. Um, And then we had, of course, you know, I'm in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania that's probably just going to remain neutral as of now. But again, we have a Republican uh, Senate and uh, House. So who knows how the uh, winds may turn here. But that, again, that's it. Wait a minute. Let me just let me just jump in quickly and say that's interesting. You mentioned Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania, I believe, historically is a Catholic state. And, absolutely. And so I find that I find that to be interesting. And it is. And, and part of it is we just had uh, for two terms um, a Democratic governor. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so I believe if we get a Republican governor, you know, and, and because of this U.S. Supreme Court case, as we do have a governor's race coming up this year. Um, these are now the questions people are asking. They are asking Dr. Oz on the Republican side. They're asking um, Kathy Barnett on the Republican side. They're asking um, Governor, uh, uh, what's his name, Attorney General Josh Shapiro on the Democratic side. What are you going to do about this new law? And, and, and I've been saying fundraising emails are making their stance very clear. And so what, the crucialness is what's happening right now is that Voters are now voting without knowing their next candidate for um, governor, especially in the Commonwealth, on what their position is on the abortion rights. And it's it's unprecedented again, but again, this uh, allows those uh, voters to have their voice being heard. 
however they, you know, choose to vote. But now they have an issue they can get behind if nothing else, you know, entice them to vote. Maybe this will get people off of their couches and into the ballot box to do what they need to do um, in order to uh, ensure that the right decision is made for everyone's right to choose. And that takes me to my next question. Do you think this is a gift to the Democrats in the midterm, and I don't mean an intentional gift, that uh, that this is this issue could wind up being a rallying cry for Democrats, turning many Democrats out who might otherwise being so disgusted with the fact that the Biden administration has failed to deliver on so many things and we're going to stay home, that this could actually get people out to the polls? You know what? Um, since the release of this announcement, um, you know, the DNC has raised double of their fundraising efforts around this issue. Um, cause, so people are, are listening. They are in tune to what's going on and they're also contributing. So I think the Democrats, you know, now have an opportunity to if, if no other message was clear, this is clear. Protect the rights of women. Protect the rights of um, of Roe v. Wade's decision um, 50 years ago. So, um, again, I think this was it, it couldn't come at a, a great time during an election year um, or mid-year um, upcoming. But it, it is an opportunity to, for Democrats to really show uh, the American people what they can do in terms of messaging and getting that message out to the masses. And I'm wondering, following on to that question I just asked you, when we looked at, for example, the recent gubernatorial election in Virginia and white suburban women were galvanized around this school issue that was really a fiction and critical race theory that is a fiction. I wonder if this could be one of those issues that flips those women back to the Democratic Party. We got about 30 seconds. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, people really didn't have a real grasp understanding about what critical race theory was. There was so many definitions and so many narratives that it was just hard for people to grasp. But people understand um, Roe versus Wade because a lot of women go through it. Um, and a, a lot of women who have been in bondage and had to make those tough decisions that they were, you know, a, a victim of incest or rape. So they know what it is and they know what lies on the table. And I think they'll make that decision at the ballot. Teresa Lundy, thank you. As always, great analysis. Really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you so much. Have a great one. You're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Speaker Pelosi says Russia's war merits the, quote, strongest possible, end quote, response. Russia's alleged invasion of Ukraine merits the strongest possible military response and the toughest sanctions, Nancy Pelosi said this yesterday, adding that the West should not be deterred by the threat of retaliation from Moscow. Well, folks, as the character Margot Channing said in the film All About Eve, fasten your seatbelts, it's going to be a bumpy night. 
For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer, author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War and from 91 to 98, served as a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq. He is, of course, Scott Ritter. As always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. Other than foolish and irresponsible, I don't really know how to describe Speaker Pelosi's jingoistic, foolish rhetoric. Uh, Your thoughts, Scott Ritter? Well, I I would um, add irrelevant. Um, She's not a player. She doesn't sit in on the National Security Council meetings. She's not sitting in in the Pentagon. She's definitely not sitting in in the White House. Um, You know, they call her in with the Gang of Eight when they need to talk about, you know, big ticket stuff. Um, And she will, of course, be consulted when it comes to, you know, paying for the munitions that are being, you know, asked for by the Biden administration. But uh, Nancy Pelosi doesn't make policy. So literally, whatever she says is for political consumption only. And because she's simply a politician, not a decision maker, um, I think you're going to see that uh, with with what potentially is going on with the Supreme Court and uh, abortion issues um, and with the midterms coming up, there's going to be less and less talk from Pelosi. This was her moment to shine. She went to Kiev. She had her, uh, you know, made for TV moment. And um, and now she's done. I, I just she's literally she doesn't factor into anything other than the money. Um, and soon she won't even matter for that because her, her, her term as speaker will end um, after the next election. That point is an interesting point, and I definitely debate that. I think her, her, her time is definitely limited. But in terms of mindset, in terms of articulating policy, and in terms of impacting America's perception of policy, for example, if she had said just the opposite, if she had said, folks, this is idiotic, this is foolish, a waste of time, and we shouldn't be in this till the last Ukrainian dies, Joe Biden would then have a hell of a fight on his hands. So I I understand her being irrelevant on the policy side, but I don't know that she's irrelevant on the galvanizing American opinion side. No, you're, you're, you're right. But I mean, you used a, a very important word there called perception. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, Pelosi, Biden, and all of their ilk right now that, that, that are in Washington on the Democratic side, and even many on the Republican side, um, they're about perception management. Um, and so they live in an in a insular world uh, that's defined by domestic American politics. It's about convincing the American public that something's real when it's not. Mm-hmm. And at some point in time in the not too distant future, um, Pelosi, Biden and company are going to have to wake up to the fact that, uh, oh, Russia didn't suffer a strategic defeat. Oh, Russia just destroyed. And I mean, I think on May 9th, they may wake up to, oh, Russia just declared war against Ukraine. Um, and has undergone a general mobilization that could position it to go to war against Finland and anybody else who crosses their path. So, I, you know, and then the American people are going to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> you told me the Ukrainians were winning. You told me Russia was strategically defeated. And now you're telling me that Russia is mobilizing and they're coming at it, you know, because 
we decided that we want to get cute about NATO and Ukraine. At some point in time, America is going to stop um, up being perception managed, and they're going to have to start to deal with reality. Um, and, you know, that, that could go one of two ways. We can either, you know, go all down on confronting Russia, or maybe we could take a step back and realize that this is an administration that lost Afghanistan, that's losing Syria, that they haven't won anything. Um, and, and they're not going to win against Russia. Uh, the, wor- you know, the best they can hope for here is a thermonuclear war. Uh, so, you know, in, in terms of, you know... Explain that one, please. Russia, well, what I mean by that is, you know, if, if your goal is to defeat Russia, the only way you can do that is through a thermonuclear war that defeats everybody. Um, you're not going to beat Russia. Uh, and, and, and so, at some point in time, I think the United States and Europe is going to wake up to the fact that, you know, it would have been better had they paid attention to the draft Russian treaties that were supplied to them on December 17th, 2021. Russia begged them to take a long, hard look at it and to deal with them seriously. These are the treaties that redefined um, the European security framework um, that had, you know, no more expansion of NATO, that had Ukraine neutral. These would have been really good things to agree to at that point in time. Then you avoid this angst that's going, that, that the world's going to be going through. And so when we look at what the United States is doing to consortium news, when we look at Joe Biden's new Ministry of Truth at the Department of Homeland Security, his Committee on Public Information, when we look at the fact that there's an all-out full-court press on independent media to anybody that wants to challenge this narrative, it, I, I, I how does that reality that you just articulated make it into the living rooms and make it into the uh, uh, into the automobiles of American people so that they can hear and understand what's going on? Well, I mean, at some point in time, you, you can you, you can only point at a map of Middle Earth and try and convince people that that's Europe for so long. Um, fantasy, um, you know, <laughs> evaporates when hard truth hits home. And I'll give you an example. Uh, CNN has a uh, general uh, spider marks um, who, who, who's up there all the time. And he has just said some of the most ridiculous, ludicrous things. Um, but spider marks finally had to sit there the other day. And, uh, you know, and, and the CNN anchor was like, okay, well, tell us what's going to happen. And he said, well, you know, basically Russia is going to carve off all of Eastern Ukraine and destroy the, you mean they're going to actually do it? I mean, they, they can do it. Uh, yeah, it looks like that's going to happen. And there's nothing we can do about it. Not really, not, not much we can do about it. I mean, it's a, and this is James Mark, you know, Spider Mark mm-hmm. said, ah, Russia will never be able to invade. They can't accomplish. They suck. They all boom, boom, boom. But reality came home to roost. And even James Mark, you know, Spider Mark spinning this stuff can't spin away what the map is telling you. Mm-hmm. And, um, this is what's going to happen because, you know, you can sit there and have the Pelosi's of the world sing whatever song they want. Uh, you can have all the anchors scream Russian war crimes and this, that Ukraine is winning heroic resistance. But when you look at the map and Russia controls all of Eastern Donbass and there's images of 60,000 dead Ukrainian soldiers or prisoners, you can't explain that away. That's reality. And that's going to come home to roost really, really soon. Is it going to come home to roost faster because the European allies are coming into realizing this reality sooner than Americans are? 
And so you've got the, the, the leaders of the unions in, in, in Germany telling Olaf Scholz, look, dude, enough of this. You're killing our economy. Something's got to be done. You've got uh, folks in France telling Macron, hey, man, we don't want to pay this much for gas. This is, this is foolish. You gotta, we're not going to sit here and just take this whipping because the United States says we has to, have to. So are those, are those realities going to wind up impacting the United States' perception of reality? No, because we never care about Europe. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we the, the average American could care less that the unions are going at uh, Schultz. They, they, it, it'll matter when Schultz falls, when his government falls and a new government comes in and changes policy, and that policy uh, it now becomes reality. It won't matter when those politics force those governments to change their support of the sanctions against Russia? No, that's, that's when it matters. That's when it becomes reality. Okay. But right now, you know, it's perception. Look, the average American couldn't, couldn't point Germany out on the map. Right. They couldn't tell you what uh, the time could, the number Couldn't find trade. Germany on a map of Germany. Yeah. So how, how and why in God's name do we think suddenly that they're going to be going, oh, my God, the, the unions are standing up to Schultz. This is a big deal. They, they, it's not part of the perception game being played here at home. They're being told by the Biden administration that we've never been more united. Europe's never been stronger. NATO's never been more relevant. Um, and as I said, at some point in time in the not too distant future, reality is going to hit home. And, um, you know, you already have Ukraine threatening war with Hungary. Um, <laughs> Ukraine, I mean, the ship is sinking and they're sitting there plotting, you know, a world cruise. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. To that point, the ship is sinking and plotting a world cruise on the same ship. Ukraine seeks Russia's total defeat, top officials say. Kiev insists the only document it will sign with Moscow is Russia's capitulation. Uh, Ukraine's top security official, Alexei Danilov, the head of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, has said that instead of a peace treaty, Kiev is only prepared to sign a document with Moscow that would finalize Russia's defeat. What say you, Scott Ritter? Yeah, you know, and when uh, Hitler found out that Franklin Roosevelt died, he was running around thinking he was the next Frederick the Great and then uh, great things were going to happen on the battle. It's great to, you know, have a fantasy life. Um, and, and, and Danilov has a really active one right now. Uh, but what Danilov doesn't understand is that when Russia speaks of a special military operation, these words have meaning. What it means is Russia's not at war with Ukraine. That's the only reason why Danilov is still alive. Mm -hmm. um, in the very near future, Russia will probably declare war on Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And when this happens, Danilov will die. All of the Ukrainian leadership will die because they become legitimate targets of war. Uh, Zelensky will not have any more press conferences, and I can guarantee you there would be no foreigners visiting Kiev because Kiev's going to turn into a target-rich environment. Um, that's what war does. And so the Ukrainians right now are living in a fantasy world that's been allowed to exist by Russia's uh, unwillingness to uh, – to target things that normally would be target, command and control, national decision-making circles, et cetera. Um, this is going to end, I think, come May 9th, in and around that time, uh, because, you know, Putin's looking at the situation, too. He's recognizing there may be a potential conflict in Transnistria. 
He realizes there may be a potential conflict with Finland. And he realizes that the forces he has available, uh, while it's capable of defeating Ukraine and eastern Ukraine, it's not capable of doing all those tasks. So I believe he's probably going to declare war against Ukraine, which takes the gloves off and go into general mobilization and get the military forces necessary to defeat everybody at the same time. Um, And when that happens, Ukraine becomes totally totally irrelevant. You know, right now they're the only game in town. Soon they're just going to be the mopping up campaign while, you know, while Russia prepares for potential future battlefields. It's going to be a long, hot summer. Um, and NATO only has itself to blame. So at the point that uh, that President Putin declares war against Ukraine, who's left in Ukraine to fight for Ukraine? No, and it, it'll just be basically this is going to uh, clear the deck for, for Russia to, A, destroy the Ukrainian government, annihilate it, mm-hmm. and then, B, um, go into Lvov heavy. Remember, denazification can only occur when you blow up the statue of Stepan Bandera and you uh, terminate every political party that has right-wing nationalistic tendencies, and that will only happen when Russia occupies Lvov. And so that's the direction we're heading. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. U.S. poised to continue its failed policies against China, says analyst Daniel Patrick Welch. The United States is poised to continue exactly the same failed policies against China that have brought it to a possible confrontation with the rising power. This is according to U.S. writer and political commentator Daniel Welch. What does this mean going forward? Well, for insight, we turn to uh, my next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., Welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So Welch writes, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken said on April 26 that he will address in the coming weeks a long-awaited U.S. national security strategy to deal with the rise of China as a great power. Quote, I will have an opportunity, I think, very soon in the coming weeks to speak publicly and in some detail about strategy, end quote. Blinken said this at a Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing. What does this signal to you? Because I have not gotten any indication that Blinken has adjusted his mindset towards any semblance of reality. I just get the sense that he still thinks he can traverse the world and tell people what to do. Um, I think you're right there. Certainly, this is not a signal of an adjustment uh, of policy or worldview. But what it is, it signals that they understand that the strategy that they've had against China, which is really just a collection of tactics, has not been working. They started with the pivot. The pivot included air-sea battle, and then they um, unrolled the national security strategy national defense strategy. Trump started the lawfare, the economic warfare, the tech warfare, the academic warfare, the information warfare, and they also tried to destabilize Hong Kong, Xinjiang, uh, etc. But all of these gray zone tactics, hybrid warfare tactics have not been working. And so they just want to step it up. They're stepping up 
stepping it up rhetorically, uh, the, you know, the national security strategy, they've leaked a portion of that and they say they're no longer talking about two plus three, that is the two great revisionist powers, China and Russia, and the three, you know, um, uh, pestilences that are insignificant, but they have decided to go for the one plus one plus three, that is China is the most consequential strategic competitor. Uh, strategic enemy, essentially. Uh, Russia is an acute, and North Korea, Iran, and other uh, actors are just persistent but annoying threats. So it, it signals a frustration in the administration, and they want uh, things, as I see it, to escalate even further. Uh, Welch said to Press TV, it's kind of odd that the U.S. is so intent on telegraphing its moves with respect to China. The weird thing is that they don't seem to realize that they've lost in Ukraine because they have managed to convince the Dutch to air some ridiculous ads touting how enduring price gouging is hurting Putin more than themselves and it's going to take them a while. Uh, there, there really seems to be a lot of fantasy involved in the in the American narrative. And I'm wondering, does Blinken believe the fantasy or or does he see reality but just has a failed strategy in terms of how to deal with it? I hope that question makes sense. It does. And, you know, I always come back to the neocons and neocons believe that they don't believe in objective reality. They build it. Uh, they believe that they create their own reality. In this situation, I would argue that, you know, the fool's uh, booby prize for failure is further ambition, further fantasy. And so I think we're seeing more of that. Clearly, from an economic standpoint, uh, Russia's back has not been broken economically. Uh, 165 countries have refused to go along with sanctions against Russia. Uh, the ruble is the highest it's been in years. And it's uh, Western Europe, you know, which is taking the brunt of this hybrid warfare. But all of this is to say that, you know, there's a strong ideological project of Lincoln and the neocons that currently control uh, the White House. And I think that they see this as uh, do or die. You know, we have to, you know, uh, you know, place all our, our bets. Uh, otherwise, the empire will collapse and we will no longer be the apex predator as we have been used to uh, being, being uh, over the past decades and centuries. You sent me a piece, uh, New Night on the Asian Chessboard, CSIS in the U.S. ruling class are very happy these days about the Northeast Pacific Front. South Korea has come back tightly onto the U.S. control and will be a key asset for war with China. Elaborate, please, KJ No. Well, South Korea has just recently elected uh, uh, extremely conservative, pro-U.S., pro-colonial, pro-Japan, pro-empire, anti-China administration. I mean, it's a terrible administration. They are essentially a group of crazies. And Yun Sagyal is, you know, to put it kindly, a loose cannon, a pyromaniac. But uh, CSIS, uh, the Center for Strategic International Studies, uh, you know, a major ruling class think tank, is happy about that. But in their interview with Victor Cha, they also uh, signal some of their um, concerns because they know that Yun Sagyal, the incoming president, is trouble. Uh, what he's going to do, he's going to sharpen the risks and he's going to sharpen the contradictions, which will be 
to their ad- advantage. And clearly, South Korea is back on the reservation. But there's quite a bit of fear and loathing in the ruling class because they know this guy is seriously outrageous. Uh, and he is, you know, uh, a loose cannon. He is, uh, you know, a bird of a feather. He will do everything the U.S. wants. He's offered U.S. foreign policy, especially an anti-China uh, policy, back to the U.S. on a silver platter. Uh, and uh, But the things that he, he is doing are potentially dangerous. So it's a mix. The U.S. is happy. Uh, especially CSIS, is happy that South Korea is back on the reservation, once a vassal, always a vassal. But they are afraid that, you know, this Biden bifurcation, this new Cold War that we're seeing, will be exacerbated even further by Yoon. And so they're trying to calibrate and figure out uh, how best to approach and manage uh, this new uh, puppet government in South Korea. And so how does Yoon play as it relates to Japan, how does the answer to that question impact domestic South Korean politics? Great questions. Uh, Yoon is uh, part of the pro-Japan, pro-U.S., uh, quizzling uh, um, political faction. And what he will do is he will reconcile. He sent all the signals that he will uh, reconcile with uh, Japan on all fronts, including the comfort women, uh, including GSOMIA, the intelligence sharing agreement, including integrating their forces and essentially creating uh, a Northeast Asian AUKUS, a JACUS, if you will, Japan, Korea and the United States trilateral, uh, you know, military, uh, you know, uh, mob. But uh, but Yun has no mandate. He won uh, by 0.7 percent uh, 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 margin. It's fractional. It's you know really the margin of error. Uh, and there's a lot of he was elected uh, partially by appealing to misogynist sentiments and domestic discontent. There is no mandate for his radical extremist foreign policy. And so I think that as he comes into power and starts to do some of the crazy, superstitious and, you know, irrational things, there will be quite a bit of pushback on the ground from the South Korean people. And so then how does that play itself out? Because I, I, my understanding of, of domestic South Korean politics is incredibly, incredibly limited. So how does that manifest itself in South Korea and how and does that mean that Yun has to quickly understand the, that his position is tenuous? I, I don't think Yun believes his position is uh, tenuous. He is a former prosecutor. He says that he will turn South Korea into a government of prosecutors. And what he's really signaling there is that because he knows he ha- he knows he has such a weak mandate, what he will do is resort to South Korea's tried and true policies of military, fascistic, uh, dictatorial oppression. And so I anticipate there will be a whole lot of uh, repression escalating in South Korea. has already signaled that he's going to go after all of his political enemies, including the, the current incumbent government. Uh, and, and then the United States will have to decide for itself whether it's worth uh, working with this person who is, you know, so clearly over the top, or whether eventually they will have to pull uh, a DM 
uh, with him, uh, you know, a few years down the line. So we'll see. But it's a very, very tenuous, very, very dangerous situation. And how does that then position uh, North Korea, particularly as I seem to recall that there was a lot of hope in South Korea about the discussions of reunification. So going forward, it seems as though uh, Kim Jong-un is just going to become more agitated and will start to flex even more than he has in the past. Yes, no, this is a very, very important question. Just to give you a quick background on the history, you know, South Korea has struggled for decades and decades for, you know, uh, democracy. And in the 1980s, it became very clear that if South Korea was to have even the slightest, uh, you know, uh, hint of democracy, that it would also have to take an anti-imperial line. This anti-imperial line is essentially what we call the 386 generation which constitutes a portion of the current uh, progressive government. This group and these people have been essentially muted uh, with the current administration coming in. And so North Korea essentially sees that there is no hope for good relations with South Korea. I'm sure that's how they're assessing the situation. They will simply move ahead with their deterrent, their nuclear deterrent. Uh, They will uh, find themselves working closer with China, and they have an agenda with their own nuclear program. They will simply continue to move ahead on schedule. And all of this rhetorical stuff that was happening under Moon Jae-in and Donald Trump, uh, you know, I think they've given up on that. Uh, the other piece is that UNSC uh, w- will no longer be enforcing uh, strong sanctions against North Korea. So North Korea has a wider hand uh, to play in the current moment. China says NATO has messed up Europe and warns over role in Asia Pacific. In response to British Foreign Secretary's warning that Beijing must play by the rules, Ministry of Foreign Affairs says NATO is stirring conflict. We have about a minute and a half. Yes. Well, I mean, essentially, Liz Truss is mistaking herself for Bodicea or Margaret Thatcher. And essentially what we're seeing here is that we're seeing that NATO is signaling that it will expand itself into the Asia Pacific. This is also affirmed by Jen Stoltenberg on uh, April 28th. Uh, what this signals is uh, the kind of same definitional insanity that we've seen before, which is to escalate against China and to use the Quad, the AUKUS. Korea will join the Quad very likely, and the JACUS, the Japan-Korea-US alliance, and to do a kind of full court press. Uh, full spectrum, uh, you know, containment and escalation with China. And once again, you know, the world is shifting and uh, none of this will end well because we are starting to enter into a new world. When you look at the Liz Trusses of the world and, and you look at the Tony Blinkens of the world and you see that they just seem to be incredibly inexperienced and they, they don't seem to understand diplomacy, Uh, Then you compare them to someone like Secretary Lavrov uh, or the Chinese foreign minister. 
Uh, these folks, uh, in terms of uh, blinking and trust, are b- bringing pea shooters to gunfights. We- yes, they're bringing mental pea shooters to uh, serious uh, diplomatic gunfights. And this is why, you know, the world is uh, circling the drain and why ultimately, I think, uh, you know, those of us who see things clearly will place their bets uh, on uh, a new polarity, uh, the development of this new polarity. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis. Look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Consortium News has a piece, A Reader Sounds Off on PayPal's Ban on Consortium News. As with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, journalism that tells some truths that might undermine the case for war can't be tolerated, writes my next guest. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's a journalist and a reader of Consortium News. He writes at thepolemicist.net, and he's the author of this piece. As always, Jim, welcome back. As always, thanks for having me. You write, after seeing the news about and doing a radio segment on the new disinformation governance board and PayPal blocking the accounts of Caleb Moppin, Munar Adley, Alan McLeod, and Mint Press News, you now see that PayPal has permanently limited and may seize the account of Consortium News because of, get this, potential risk associated with this account. Jim Cavanaugh, how concerned should Americans be? Extremely concerned. Look, you know, uh, the consortium news, you know, I had seen, we had talked about the radio, in the radio segment about what happened to Caleb and in press news now on the cloud, uh, you know, but consortium news really hit me hard because I, I've, I've respected this source, you know, for decades. I was reading it when Robert Perry founded it and introduced it. I, you know, Robert Perry was, I, I wrote an article about him. I linked in this article and I hope people link to it and read it, you know, when he died in 2018. Cause, and I called him a touchstone of journalistic integrity. And I think that's exactly what he was. And new, consortium news, you know, when it started out as a newsletter before there was really social media and the internet, it's been a touchstone of journalistic integrity and not at all, you know, uh, lefty or tanky or whatever, you know, it's been honest and well-researched and whatever you agree or disagree with it, they're doing honest principle journalism. So to see this go, see this get hit and get tagged as something which is a potential risk, you know, as I said in this piece, the only risk this year is the risk of, to your ignorance, <laughs> uh, which is exactly the point. That's the only thing that's being threatened by consortium news and, and by these other journalists too. But, you know, consortium news was around for decades before they were... And so this really hit me hard, and I think it's very important, it's very dangerous that they're going after outlets like this. Anything, and as as a Joe Lorio, who has, you know, continued the, the Robert Perry tradition of journalistic integrity with Consortium News, said, 
you know, this is likely because they're speaking out in ways about the Ukraine war and the Ukraine conflict that conflict with the American narrative. And the United States government doesn't want that. Two things. One, you made the point about all that's in danger is your ignorance. And that made me think to the to the point that, you know, most people listen to analysis and read analysis that validates their position, not challenges their position. That's why I think Fox News uh, carries the weight that it carries is because so many conservatives turn there not to learn anything, but for validation of their positions. Speak to that first. Yeah, you know, it, it is horrible. We're in a situation of bubbles and people don't want to get out of them. I'm having a conversation on Facebook and on email with my high school classmates, Regis High School, the high school that Anthony Fauci went to, you know, so a lot of smart people. And, and you, you know, one of them, yeah, one of them, <laughs> one, yeah, a lot of smart people in me. Yeah. <laughs> and there's me, fast talking, loud people. <laughs> and one of them, friend of mine and a you know, co-conspirator in a certain sense, put up something about Eva Bartlett's story about the mass graves that were supposedly Russian, you know, people who had been slaughtered by the Russians and dumped in mass graves. And Eva Bartlett went there and interviewed the grave diggers. They're not mass graves. These are not slaughtered by the Russians. They were, they were graves that were with individual graves that were dug for casualties of the war, blah, 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 blah. And the guys who are smart guys, I mean, you know, PhDs and doctors and lawyers and, and you know, oh, I don't trust Eva Bartlett. But did you read it? <laughs> no, but they, they, they give me clips of Wikipedia. Eva Bartlett is a Russian troll, you know? And it's like, did you read it? <laughs> you know, what they get? Oh, no, but you, I don't have to read it because I know because the, and the things from the New York Times about, oh, RT is a Russian, you know, NATO is telling they're there to foment discord. So I don't have to read it. So this is what we had in the, where we're at in the United States. And, uh, you know, uh, as I say, for, there were certain publications over decades that transcended that. Consortium News was one of them. But now we're in a situation where it's extremely hard to break through people's prejudices. There's a circular logic. Well, that may be true, but it's from this person. And this person I hear from the guys I, I listen to on the New York Times or MSNBC say that person is unreliable. Or, you know, if you go to Fox, oh, this person is a, is a liberal. That's, you can't talk to him. You know, you can't listen to him. So this is what you get. And it's very, very dangerous, especially in a circumstance where we're being led to war. That, that promotion of war is being done both by MSNBC and Fox News. And it's interesting that you that you just relay that story because I have been involved in some exchanges on Facebook where people say, you know, that the people tell me I need to move back to Russia, that as an African-American man, I'm disgraceful because I'm I'm on I'm on uh, Sputnik that uh, I need to I need to call my buddy Putin and all this other stuff. And so I asked them, well, have you ever listened to the show? And the and the answer is no. Because it's Russian, and I know what you're going to say to them, which I say, well, then you're an idiot because you're condemning something you've never heard. And I say, at least give me one shot. Spend an hour listening to the show. But no, they can't because it's Russian. They, they, you know, it's Russian radio. You're a bot, and you know, you're a, you're a traitor. I said, well, I may be a traitor, but I'd rather be a traitor than an idiot. 
to condemn something that I that I haven't even listened to. And the other thing too is that I you know I, I implore people as it relates to consortium news and as it relates to a lot of other sites that we quote and and have people on you need to look at these people's credentials. I mean Chris Hedges is no slouch. Jim Cavanaugh is no slouch. Joe Loria has journalistic credentials. Caitlin Johnstone, credentials. And so people need to pay attention to these credentials. Um, You know, Ray McGovern, Scott Ritter, these folks got credentials. But that all seems to fall by the wayside as soon as you are hit with the RT moniker or the Sputnik News moniker. And the, the not irony, I don't know what you call it, but the irony is that the the, 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 the the media they're depending on and trusting on are media that have are known to have lied comfortably. They've lied us into every war. NBC.com three weeks ago just published a piece admitting we're lying to you. Now, we're doing it for noble reasons, but we're lying to you. NBC just admitted it. And, and they're relying on the opinion of those people about the reliability of you or me or Joe Loria or, you know, I mean, they, or Eva Bartlett. You know, Eva Bartlett goes on the ground. They have a, a report that they repeat from the absent mayor of Mariupol about a mass grave of slaughtered things, and that's just repeated as a fact by the mainstream media, and you have a reporter that goes out to the place and shows, has a video of her at the place showing you what's there, and, well, we can't trust her. <laughs> but you can trust the, 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 the media that you know have lied to you constantly to get you into war, and you know that's what they're doing now. They are in a, in a program now of trying to solicit your consent for them to take any military action they want in, in, against Russia and Ukraine. Now, you talk about in your piece the establishment of a ministry of truth within the Department of Homeland Security. You call it a repressive state apparatus. Biden's Committee of Public Information, this woman, Nina Jankowicz, it, who calls herself a disinformation fellow, <laughs> and but but you know you can watch her videos and you would I think after watching her videos you would have to question her sanity but she is now the director of the committee of public information that is in I mean take me back to Orwell in 1984 well, you know, it's funny. Someone said the other day, I think it's probably, she's like the cast of Glee <laughs> put in charge of the government. She's a, you know, you, you watch her, you watch her videos, and she really loves it. I'm not begrudging her singing and doing musical theater, you know, on, on, online. And there's another video of her, how she was, uh, her ambition was to become a yoga teacher. Uh, <laughs> uh, she's a and, wackadoodle. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you. So I don't begrudge her singing, singing her songs, but, you know, You've got Joe Biden who can't put two sentences together and doesn't know where he is. Uh, you know, appointing someone who's a you know the 
Look, look, hang on, hang on, hang on, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I can't allow you to come on these airwaves, and just because he's trying to shake hands with invisible people, you want to question his sanity. Come on now. The ghost of Corn Pop, and you, and, and you, go, go ahead, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the point thing, you know, the, the lead in the high school play, or the second in the high school play, to run the Ministry of Truth, essentially. You know, it's, what, what is this? And it is in, the, I call the, the Department of Homeland Security a repressive state apparatus. Just that, this is an Althusserian term, a Marxist term about ideological state apparatuses and their repressive state apparatuses, the ideological state. That connection is very important because people need to understand that, I guess, if you are deemed to violate the rules of the Committee of Public Information as it falls under the Department of Homeland Security, I can only assume you can be labeled a terrorist. Exactly right. This is a danger to society. You know, if you're saying things that... You know, so doubt. This is what it is. I mean, media and platforms that so doubt about this the establishment narrative. They might be preparing people, leading people down a path that would end up in some kind of terrorist violence. You know, sixty-eight years down the road or sixteen months down the road. So this is the, this is a police uh, organization, a police problem now, the problem of disinformation. It's not just a problem, you know, it's not in the ideological state or in the less repressive state apparatus of the ideological state, the Department of State or, you know, the, the, the social uh, HSS, but this is the police. This is a police agency that is going to now be looking for people to repress, <laughs> to potentially arrest for being a danger to society, for having certain ideas, and for sowing doubt about the official narrative in the context of a war. This is wartime censorship that is being imposed on the United States when we're not officially at war, we should not assume that we're at war, and nobody should have the right to put us into a de facto state of war. And I believe the First Amendment provides us freedom of speech— freedom of press, the right to peaceably assemble, and petition the government for redress of grievances. That is what challenging the narrative is, petitioning the government for a redress of grievances. That is very clearly spelled out in the First Amendment, and this is being trampled upon by the very administration that claims it's protecting democracy. Yeah, I want to say one, something very important about that. Rights are dangerous. <laughs> All rights are protected bec- and have to be protected because they do carry a risk. They carry a risk, in this case, the risk to the dominant narrative, the risk to the story that they want you to believe about the world, which is going to get you to do something. But the line that we have to abrogate rights because they, 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 they create a risk is on misunderstanding what rights are and what they're, what they're for. Rights give you a certain amount of power relative to the government that poses some kind of, of at least a slight risk to the government. And we as a society decide to ensure rights, even though, or precisely because, they create a risk that we want to have a society in which doubt is sown. And... They protect you as a citizen against intrusion 
upon those rights by the government. And that's exactly what's being done here. The government is infringing upon our rights. And the reason we have a Bill of Rights is to protect us from those very actions. Jim Cavanaugh, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Press TV reports Iran foreign minister says Vienna talks not paused. U.S. has understood Tehran's red lines. What are we to make of this? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's a broadcaster, analyst, and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Marouf, as always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So the uh, Iranian foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdul-Aliyan, says uh, negotiations on the revival of the 2015 nuclear deal have not been paused, stressing that Tehran and Washington are in indirect correspondence to reach an agreement on removing the anti-Iran sanctions. Quote, the Vienna talks have not been paused, but they continue in another process to remove the unilateral sanctions imposed on us and through the exchange of written messages with the Americans through the EU representative. Your thoughts on this, and do you have insight into this other process that is is referenced here? Basically, there has been more statements coming out of the Iranian officials today, uh, and what we uh, the what they're drawing to us in terms of uh, what is happening is that apparently everything has been agreed on, but the United States has yet to sign on the agreement. So. Uh, what is happening behind the scenes, the, these negotiations, uh, it's clear that uh, the United States is going to have to take a decision. Have they actually agreed or are they just delaying? We don't know. Uh, there's many files in uh, Western Asia that are very volatile at the moment. Maybe the United States is actually delaying just to see how uh, these files unfold, like the elections in Lebanon, like forming the government in Iraq, uh, like the uh, end of the um, ceasefire in Yemen that's, that's coming in the next few weeks, that two-month ceasefire, which all of them connect to Iran and the axis of Jerusalem, uh, the new naming of the axis of resistance. Uh, so... Um, in my opinion, um, I believe the United States will not be signing on to this deal, not anytime soon. So when the foreign minister, you know, talks about where they are in, in the process and understanding that proxies are involved here, that neither side is talking directly to the other, if I understand the, the process, then are you saying that for all intents and purposes, the proxies have come to an understanding, but that the United States has failed to – and that that understanding has been uh, put into writing 
and that the but the United States has failed to sign on the dotted line. Exactly. So the negotiations concluded basically in Geneva, and what we have is is uh, they have the Europeans been the mediator between uh, Iran and the United States, and going back and forth, and have provided a document that includes everything that is in agreement on, and what is left is for the United States to sign the dotted line and announce that it uh, is returning to the uh, agreement and lifting the sanctions. So uh, right now, that is all that is uh, remaining. But as I said before, I personally think that the United States is not going to return to it, uh, definitely not anytime soon. And following on that, we know that the U.S. has insisted on keeping the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, on the terrorist list, that that designation was added by the Trump administration, of course, after the JCPOA had been not only signed but implemented. So now Iran is demanding that that designation be lifted. The Biden administration is disagreeing with that. And this is what I find interesting. State Department spokesman Ned Price said yesterday, if Iran wants to put issues on the table that are outside the confines of the JCPOA, Iran will, of course, have to be in a position to make concessions on those issues. I find that interesting that Ned Price would say that about issues outside the confines of the agreement because the designation of the IRGC as a terrorist organization was done outside of the agreement. So what is Ned Price talking about? Yeah, this is where you realize that there is uh, constant contradictions between the supposed actions of the United States in the uh, negotiation process and their uh, comments and actions outside that process. And uh, here we can see clearly that the United States does not want to return to the agreement because the uh, returning to the agreement means lifting any sanctions that are outside uh, uh, of that happened since the agreement, um, especially as you note the uh, listing of the IRGC on the terrorist uh, bodies of the United that, that acknowledged by the United States. So, what what we can expect right now is just more delays, and uh, but we have to keep our eyes open. Uh, on all the files in Western Asia as they unfold, because that will be the marker that will tell us if the United States will return or not. Al Jazeera reports an estimated 3,000 people flee armed clashes in northern Iraq. Clashes first erupted Sunday when the Iraqi military launched an operation to clear the area of YBS forces. Talk. I assume. So, so talk about this, uh, and as how and how all of this relates to uh, the uh, Yazidis. Yeah, I mean, this is a very uh, important file, and we can see the United States playing a role in this conflict uh, to agitate it. Uh, everybody remembers, of course, the massacres that uh, the Wahhabi Contras, uh, known as ISIS, uh, committed against the Yazidis in uh, North. Uh, West uh, Iraq. And uh, this area, 
the only way that it was liberated from uh, ISIS was through the popular mobilization units and the support of uh, General Soleimani of the uh, Iranian armed forces. Um, and unfortunately, since that um, liberation of the area, the United States has been trying to install as many militias that are outside of the control of the federal government of Iraq as it can. So we can see clearly how it uh, armed and created the multiple Kurdish Contras in the region, and now as we what we're discussing today is the Yazidi Contras that were armed and created by the United States. This is a very important strategic uh, location in Iraq, which uh, where all the, uh, the the Kurdish Contras are bringing out the oil and wheat and cotton of Syria looted through towards uh, south, uh, you know, North Iraq and South Turkey to be smuggled out uh, through Turkey. And therefore, this Yazidi militia is collecting tax for this uh, convoys of looted material coming out of Syria and is becoming stronger and stronger and refusing the authority of the central uh, federal government in Baghdad. And the Iraqi army is doing the uh, logical thing, which is to move in and assert the control of the federal government on the border region uh, between North uh, Iraq and North Syria. So what tactical advantage does the United States see or does the United States gain by funding the Yazidis in this conflict? So the United States plan has always been to uh, ethnically cleanse the north of Iraq and Syria and change the demographic uh, a composition of the population there to make it that it is uh, ethnically void of Arabs uh, to, to uh, you know, help the plan of the United States to break uh, Iraq and Syria into multiple states. So remember, this is these are the uh, floodplains of the Tijris and the Euphrates. These are the birth uh, lands of uh, what we know as the Semitic peoples. This is the, um, you know, homelands of the Assyrian and the Ash, uh, Syriac uh, peoples and, and, and of course, the Arab peoples. And, and the United States wants to uh, continue the plan of uh, devoiding these lands of their original uh, indigenous population and populating them with minorities that are not from this land, including Kurds and, in this situation, uh, the Yazidis which will be a small minority holding a huge part of land with a lot of resources that will continue to need the protection of an external force to maintain their power over this land. And uh, that will mean assurance of the United States' existence in the north of Syria and Iraq. Prince Turkey al-Faisal says the Saudis feel let down by the U.S. amid strained ties, fueling recent reports on tensions between U.S. and Saudi officials. High-ranking Prince Turkey al-Faisal, the former intelligence chief, spoke to Saudi media, telling them that the kingdom feels let down by the U.S. over lack of American actions on the Saudis' security struggles. And I find it interesting that they're referencing security struggles in the context of the Yemen conflict 
And this is a conflict that the Saudis started and that the United States has supported. So if you start the fight, then how can you be concerned about your security struggles in the midst of the fight? If, you, if you're that concerned, stop the fight. Yeah, it's a continuation of the double speak coming out of the imperialist camp as a whole. And, uh, you know, the, I've, I've said this before on, on your show, and, and my understanding or my analysis of what's happening within this imperialist core is that there is a schism and a civil war that uh, drags from the times of Obama to Trump till today. And that includes, uh, you know, a schism within the wings of this empire, as we see the Saudis and the Israelis, the well, what can we can call a conservative wing of the empire clashing with the liberal uh, democratic, uh, quote unquote, wing of the empire. Uh, and, and here, uh, this this competition, um, you know, we can see that its effect on, on the American elections, for instance, in, the, in 2020 and uh, 2016. And we see the election, uh, the, uh, the results of it on the ground in the war on Yemen. And as we see uh, these comments uh, by uh, Saudi officials that are critical of the Biden administration. Now, what does this mean to, to us who are anti-imperialists? It is actually uh, joyous to see the empire uh, and its components fighting each other. This is uh, going to only increase the resolve of the Yemeni people and uh, a build for the liberation of Yemen because of this internal uh, fighting within the empire. I ask this question periodically so that we can never lose sight of what do the Saudis, what's their objective here in starting this fight with Yemen? What is it that they, what's the tactical advantage that they see in defeating Yemen? Well, it's the same uh, tactical advantage that the British had when they occupied Yemen and uh, or the in, during the war between Egypt and Saudi in Yemen in the 1960s. It's who can control the Bab al-Mandib Strait. Uh, this strait, uh, you know, most of the oil that comes out of the Gulf has to go through it and then to the Sina Canal. And therefore, this is about controlling traffic of trade in the world. And Yemen should be able to control its uh, sea ter- uh, waters and uh, benefit from uh, this trade. And that's the future. Um, and the war will continue until we have a definite, uh, de- you know, defeat of either side. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And I look forward to having you back. You have a great evening. You too, sir. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. 
RT reports Russia retaliates against, quote, unfriendly states, end quote. President Putin signed a new set of tit-for-tat measures over Western sanctions. What, do we, what are we to make of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C., and he's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, which is headquartered in Dallas, Texas. Dr. David Walalu. As always, welcome back. Glad to be with you, Walmart. So President Putin introduced a package of economic measures uh, today to retaliate against international sanctions placed on Moscow. The new decree seeks to protect Russia's national interest and was adopted, quote, in connection with the unfriendly actions of the United States and its allies that violate international law and aim to illegally deprive the Russian Federation and Russian legal entities of their property. The decree published on the Kremlin's website states that. Your thoughts, Dr. Walalu, because some of the analysis or of this that I'm hearing is, you know, here goes Russia being aggressive. Most of the analysis I'm hearing on the Western press is very negative, but this is what I can see is is Russia doing to others what's being done to them, doing to others as you would have them doing to you, Dr. Walalu. Oh, you're absolutely correct, Walmer. I had a chance to read uh, the article published by the Kremlin, and, and I am not surprised. It is ex- expected move. And the reason being, just for your listeners to know, we have to look at the trends that's taking place, especially in Eastern Europe as we speak. What am I talking about here, Wilmer? I am talking about four countries. I'm talking about Slovakia, Poland, Bulgaria, and Hungary. Not all of them share common thing when it comes down to Russia. For Poland and Bulgaria, Russia decided to cut off the delivery of gas because those two EU members refused to pay in ruble. In the case of Hungary... Hungary decided to pay in a ruble and said to the EU, no, 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 we're going to maintain our business or trade with Russia. We don't care what you, the European Union says, because we need the gas from Russia at a cheaper price and we're going to pay in a ruble. Slovakia, which was, which, was, which was just yesterday, Russia decided to cut off the gas delivery for them. So I am not surprised at the move. It makes perfect sense. Here is what the Western media is not disclosing, is that individual countries and collectively the EU, especially including some government representatives behind closed doors, are reassessing now where things are headed with the sanctions imposed by the U.S. and some of the Western allies. In terms of Poland and I think Bulgaria, as I understand the gas issue, initially they were trying to get their gas from Germany, who gets its gas from Russia. But Russia then decided no, to saying to Germany, we're only going to provide you enough for your country. If you want to give your gas to Poland, that's your business. But we're not going to provide you with more gas than you need so that you can sell it on the market and circumvent our action. Is that accurate? It is accurate, Walmart, because here is the thing. While the Nord Stream 2 now is not operational, 
Nord Stream 1, mm -hmm. which is mainly the one that imports gas from Russia to Germany, is still out of full, full functioning. So you're absolutely correct. The Germans like wanted to cut a deal by making money through. Russia says no. But the point is not about all that. The point is how much, how firm Russia is in ensuring that, you know, you're going to play, you want to play ball, hardball, we're going to play hardball as well. What shocks me the most, Wilmer, just for your listeners to know about Poland, specifically Poland, I found out yesterday that Poland has agreed to allow nuclear weapons on its territory. It is a bad, bad strategic move by the Polish government, which they will pay heavy price for. And this is what concerns me the most. What does Poland see as the upside for taking an, an action such as that? Are there inducements being offered to them by the United States? Or is this just an a blind ideological decision made by the president of Poland? No, it is the pressure from the U.S., Wilmer. Your listeners need to understand Poland is not doing this willingly. Bulgaria is not acting willingly. As a matter of fact, it was a disclosure of classified information. It's not classified anymore. We can, I'd like be happy to share it with your listeners, is that there were troops from NATO training on the Polish soil, mm -hmm. which was like, wait a minute, what are NATO troops doing in Poland to begin with? <clears throat> and what concerns me again the most is that what Poland, what Polish government I am sure they are realizing this, but the people, Polish people, they don't realize that they will be first to be burned in case something happens if they ask, things escalate beyond. But the idea of the reaction of Russia right now is because Russia also seeing the cracks in Eastern Europe going where things are headed. We all saw uh, what uh, the uh, request from the president of the United States from Congress for $33 billion dollars as for, for more military aid to Ukraine. What are we doing with this, Warmer? When it's going to stop when American families are now struggling? When you look at the streets in Philadelphia and Detroit and how bad the infrastructure is, when our education system is dysfunctional, when our tax system is broken, and yet people, American people paying taxes that they are not seeing any return for it. What are we giving this money? When you say Poland would be the first to suffer, and when you look at a map, you've got Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Lithuania, all between Poland and Russia. So are you talking about missile strikes? Because I, I don't think you'd be talking about troop movement. No, we're talking, you're absolutely correct, missile strikes. Why? When I wrote the Russian book, I disclosed in it that it would be just a matter of time if, this is a big if, if NATO troops move closer to Poland or Poland will allow the installment of advanced weapon systems from the West, Russia is going to have to redirect its short and medium range missiles towards Poland. This is why I meant by Poland will be burned first. I let along the other Baltic states. Slovakia, Lithuania, so those will be, but Poland will be first. Ukraine seeks Russian total defeat, according to top officials. Kiev insists the only document it will sign with Moscow is Russia's capitulation. Uh, Ukraine's top security official, Alexei uh, Danilov, the head of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, has said that instead of a peace treaty, Kiev is only prepared to sign a document with Moscow that would finalize 
criticize Russia's defeat. This announcement comes as the conflict between the two countries continues. This I find very in- this position and these statements I find very interesting because at the beginning of all of this, <clears throat> um, the uh, uh, president of uh, of Ukraine was was talking about compromise, was talking about peace talks, and so now we we hear, uh, well, the only thing that we're going to sign. Is uh, is Russia's capitulation? That to me sounds like the United that that that's the United States talking. That's not Ukraine. I have to concur with you, Wilmer. It is clear to you know it, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. It is as clear as it can be. The decisions are not made in Ukraine. The decisions are made in Brussels, Washington, London, Paris. And, and Berlin to a degree, but mainly the U.S. Because we all know, and I remember uh, on one of the previous shows uh, I had with you guys that I mentioned that decision. Zelensky cannot make a decision. We're not be allowed to make it. It's Washington that decides decides on that. And with the recent trip of the Speaker of the House, it confirmed to me personally, and this is my personal opinion, how much the United States is the deciding factor regarding this conflict. They can either drag it for long, which I am sure they are. This is why you're seeing the funding is increasing with every spending bill. We are giving more billions in military aid. And this is why the decision is not in Ukraine, made in Ukraine, but rather in Washington and some other Western capital. Talk about Pelosi's trip because she says that this war merits the, quote, strongest possible response. She says Russia's invasion of Ukraine merits the strongest possible military response and and toughest sanctions. Uh, Here is Nancy Pelosi standing on Russian soil. Still no American troops are involved. So she's basically saying the United States is committed to this till the last Ukrainian dies. (laughs) Well, that's right there. You know, the Speaker of the House has to push the agenda, of course, given that she controls the legislative, uh, especially in the House of Representatives, and the push for it, that will make perfect sense, you know. But the idea of thinking that, you know, Zelensky is going to now stand up to her or to any other U.S. officials, it's nonsense. He can't. That's plain and simple. And what we're going to be seeing, given that even the United States president, who's been heading out tomorrow to, I believe he's going to be in Alabama visiting the uh, uh, Lockheed Martin facility, mm-hmm. the one that is providing the javelin and asking for more production of javelins to be sent to Ukraine. So we can just see the United States objective is to drag this on. The question that we as Americans need to ask, where this is headed and who's benefiting from it? When Americans, as I said earlier, American families are struggling. The prices of food, energy, commodities. You look at, for example, uh, Walmart, New York and New Jersey owes about $2.4 billion to to, uh, public service companies. There are some states now, the companies within some states, threatening to cut off electricity by the end of the month if the bills are not paid. So what are we sending this amount of money? What are we having the speaker going to Ukraine for? 
She should you be going. She should be going to New Jersey. Exactly, and this is why they are not. They, when I say they, I'm referring to the Washington establishment, the media. They are not disclosing the truth to the American people. This is why Europeans right now, behind closed doors, are like reassessing where this is headed. Germans, the inflation is about 14 percent. I got one of my contacts in Germany. People are starting to, Germans that is, they are starting to talk because now we start to hit their pocket. Well, we are already feeling this. So when do those behind the closed doors schisms start to manifest themselves publicly? I don't know, Wilmot, if they will. Okay. Because Europe, Europe is like the child that never grows up. They're always in need of care and direction. And finally, I'm trying to figure out the political optics of Joe Biden sending $33 billion to the Ukraine. And to your point, people in New Jersey are on the verge of having their power cut off and people are being evicted from their apartments at, at the highest rates we've seen in recent history. Well, the way I see it is to play out for to first the midterm election, of course, in November, but also the presidential elections by ensuring that the defense contractors, you know, you know, donate enough for the uh, Democrats in, in, in both the House and the Senate and ensure that there's the support for the Democrats for on, at least uh, in both the midterms and the presidential elections. But this is insanity. This has to stop. At some point. Well, Dr. David Walalu, thank you so much. And what we've learned over time is America can't provide guns and butter. We figured that out very early on in this game. Dr. David Walalu, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. My pleasure, Wilmer. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. The Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled, A Look at Lula's Project to Create a Common Currency for Latin America. I wonder what would this mean for the new world order and the rules-based order? Well, for insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an American human rights, labor rights lawyer, author, writer, and peace activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, The Huffington Post, and Telesur, and he teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law, Dan Kovalik. As always, Dan, welcome back. Thank you very much. So this past Saturday, with elections only six months away, Lula, who is a pre-candidate for the Workers' Party, expressed his support for the creation of a common Latin American currency as part of the strengthening of relations between countries in the region. Quote, we don't have to be dependent on the dollar, Lula said during a speech at the Electoral Congress of the Socialism and Liberty Party, where the party declared its support for Lula in the upcoming elections in October. Dan, I see this as a very provocative and dangerous move. Saddam Hussein tried to convince OPEC to revalue oil off of the dollar onto the euro. Muammar Gaddafi promoted a similar African currency to challenge the EU, and we know that it didn't bode well for either of them. What say you, Dan Kovalik? Yeah, no, you make a fair point. 
Uh, and I do agree, you know, to be making noises about that now um, before even becoming president uh, or is certainly dangerous. On the other hand, the truth is this is the way the world's going, right? I mean, especially after these sanctions that the U.S. imposed against Russia, which has forced their hand, Russia and China and other countries, to go to the Chinese yuan to trade uh, oil on, you're just going to see more and more of this. People either going to the Chinese currency, going to the ruble, or coming up with regional currencies of their own to get away from the U.S. dollar because the preeminence of the U.S. dollar makes it easy for the U.S. to be able to sanction and coerce countries as they do. And uh, if if countries free themselves from the U.S. dollar, it will be harder for the U.S. to effectively sanction them. So I just think you're going to see this more and more. And interesting because a while ago, uh, El Salvador moved to become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. And uh, President uh, Nayib uh, Berkel, uh, he's plan to spend $225 million on the rollout, including a $30 credit in Bitcoin to those who take up the, uh, how you pronounce it, uh, Shivo. So that that's just an example of not only moving off of the dollar, but when you start talking about moving to Bitcoin, I mean, that's really, really uh, futuristic and progressive. Yeah, well, and remember that uh, you know, some years ago, Maduro created the Venezuelan uh, Petro cyber currency, which has done very well. Uh, actually, even though uh, it's very hard for Americans to buy it because the uh, Petro's sanctioned. But in any case, yes, again, I think countries are going to find unique ways to get around the greenback as the reserve currency. How is this idea playing right now for Lula? I think very well. I think that they're, you know, I think people in the global south are tired of being pushed around by the United States. Of course, in Brazil, they real they know now if they didn't know before that the U.S. was behind the wrongful arrest and prosecution of Lula, uh, which prevented him from becoming president in 2018. And so they know the power of the United States, um, and they want to get from you know out from underneath the thumb of the U.S. This would be a model similar to that of the euro, and would contribute to the integration and strengthening of the um, monetary sovereignty of the region. But we know that the European Union has had its issues. Uh, do you see? And, and, and I think many of those issues are economic and, and nationalist uh, in, in their basis. Do, would you see similar types of problems in the global south? Well, yes. I mean, when you try to launch a new currency or even try to depend on your own currency, um, you have to – you know, it only works if people use it and value it, right? It only has the value that people place in it for the most part. For the most part – Currencies are no longer backed by commodities like they used to be, you know, by the gold or whatever, although Russia has gone back to that, right? They're now backing the ruble and gold, but that's a new thing. So mostly— That's what uh, Gaddafi was going to back the dinar on. Was a, It was going to be a gold-backed currency. Right. And in Venezuela, the petro cyber currency is backed by oil, you know. So, uh, But if you don't do that, really, it's only worth what 
to the extent people have faith in it. You know, in the U.S., it's the full faith and credit clause that gives the dollar value. So, of course, if you launch a new currency and people don't literally don't buy it, they don't have faith in it, and they keep using the old currency or using the U.S. dollar, then you may not be able to get that currency off the ground. And we've seen that even in Cuba, right, which never was able to fully get off the dollar, right? They had a, a dual economy with uh, Cuban currency and the dollar, uh, for many years, I think that's still the case. Uh, Nicaragua and Venezuela, which wanted to get off the dollar, they uh, are almost total dollarized economies now. I've traveled to both countries recently, and most businesses conducted in U.S. dollars, not because they want it, but because they were forced into that. Uh, by circumstances, and so uh, that is the danger, or at least. It is the risk of, of trying a new currency. It just may not work. Staying in the global south but moving to uh, Mexico, AMLO says to Biden, no country can be excluded from Summit of the Americas. The president of Mexico, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, has warned his U.S. counterpart, Joe Biden, that no country can be excluded. He confirmed this yesterday that during a call with Biden last Friday, he asked Biden not to exclude any countries from the Ninth Summit of the Americas, which will take place in June. And speak to that, Dan, because as Biden talks about supporting democracy, uh, supporting sovereignty, he seems to be hell-bent on contradicting the very things that he promotes. Yeah, of course. So he's been threatening to keep Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela out of the sum of the, of the Americas as if it's just his right, as if the U.S. you know, controls the Americas and can just designate who comes and doesn't come. Uh, and it's great that AMLO is pushing back against that. I mean, AMLO is becoming a very important voice in Latin America. Mexico is a very important country. It has a big economy. It's a member of NAFTA, a trading bloc with the U.S. and Canada. So actually what he says has some importance. And so if he sticks to his guns, it may be that Biden will be forced to invite those countries. And I hope that's the case. And let's look at a couple of things as it relates to these countries. For example, when Joe Biden was vice president in the Obama administration, President Obama tried to, well, did open up uh, discussions and there was expanded trade and an exchange between the United States and Cuba, then Donald Trump comes in and shuts that down, and Biden follows the Trump line as it relates to Cuba, uh, telling us that in many regards, as a lot of people said, anybody but Trump, in many regards, what people got is more Trump. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, he has not uh, reopened the ties and uh, that, that that Obama did. Do, do you have any uh, idea as to as to why is he listening to Menendez? Is he listening to uh, 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 Lil Marco? I mean, why? What what's Joe Biden's issue with Cuba? Well, my guess is there's three reasons, and that's Florida, Florida, and Florida, mm -hmm. uh, because the you know the anti-Castro Cubans are still very powerful there, and because Florida continues to be a very important swing state in national elections, I think Biden is fearful to alienate 
but but, uh, but, the Obama, but Obama won Florida both times. And when I looked at the demographic data as it related to the election outcome, yes, the uh, the 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 Cubans in Florida voted Republican, but the, it was an age issue. Their children tended to vote for Obama. So I guess is it Biden's age that has him siding with the older Floridians as opposed to looking at the reality that their children aren't buying that ideology? Well, that may be true, but there's other things that have happened to make Florida uh, much more out of reach for the Democrats. Uh, and that is how Floridians uh, view how DeSantis uh, responded to the pandemic. I think most Floridians actually support that over lockdowns and that sort of thing. Um, and frankly, some of DeSantis's uh, conservative social uh, positions, a lot of Floridians like. And I mean, the last I've seen in the last week, and I, I have happen to see this that, you know, in fact, the Democrats are putting less money into Florida now because they may they think now it may not be in play at all as a national uh, in national elections. And so, yeah, definitely, I think Biden uh, has seen that or his people have seen it. And, and that may be one reason that he's not uh, restoring the greater ties with Cuba. Quickly to, to follow up on this one more point on the Cuba thing. I saw American agribusiness backing the policy towards Cuba, Archer's Daniel Midland and many of the other meat producers because they see that as a uh, very strong market for them. Of course, we know we know what the what the cruise industry and what the airlines want to do. They want to fly into Cuba. They want to sh- sail into Cuba. So there's a lot of money here that I so I, I don't understand the politics. Yeah, well, I agree with you. And that's been true for years. It's been true for years. The agribusiness and tourist industry have wanted to open up uh, Cuba. And this is a case where, you know, uh, a unique case almost where uh, profits and corporate interests are trumped more by ideological and purely political interests uh, emanating out of Florida. May Day March in Caracas, Venezuela issues $2,200 bonus to retirees. This past Sunday, the uh, Workers' Day March was celebrated, and again, uh, President Maduro uh, offers $2,200 bonuses to retirees. People in this country may not see that as a lot of money, but I think it was more symbolic than it was value. Yeah, although I do think it means a lot to people, and it does show – I think what it does show, too, is how the uh, Venezuelan economy is bouncing back. I mean that they were able to do that. Uh, it's it, what Maduro has done is nothing less than miraculous. I mean, the U.S. sanctions cut Venezuela's revenue to literally zero zero dollars at one point. Now they're expecting twenty percent growth this year. Um, and so, yeah, I think, and I think Maduro wants to make a point of using that you know uh, uh, economic gains, and he wants that to translate to improvements in the lives of working people, which is terrific. Final point: U.S. courts delay decision on Alex Saab's diplomatic immunity. Saab remains in prison. What's happened here? Yeah, well, the big thing to get Saab out of uh, prison and and back home to Colombia is if he you know he were 
uh, recognized as having diplomatic immunity because then the U.S. couldn't have – shouldn't have arrested him to begin with and he should be released immediately. And frankly, I think that what they're doing to Saab, what they're doing to Julian Assange, that you know, without successfully trying him, they're just going to keep him in jail for as long as they possibly can. <sighs> Golly. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Thank always you, Dan. my pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. Orinoco Tribune has a piece entitled Imperialism by John Parker. And uh, John writes, the word imperialism has been used and misused often as the crisis in Ukraine continues. An understanding of its meaning is important in any analysis. For insight into this, let's turn to my next guest. He's the national organizer for Action for Assange, Steve Poikin. And Steve, as always, welcome back. Wilmer, it's great to be here. So John Parker continues, disinformation and misdirection abound. Why? To sell the public U.S. imperialist wars. The mislabeling as imperialist towards any enemy of U.S. imperialism is one tactic used to deceive. This especially occurs when a country is trying to defend itself or assist in the defense of an ally against a nation that actually is imperialist. Your thoughts, Steve Poikinen. Well, we've seen this on a level that I don't, I honestly don't recall at any other point in my life uh, where the government is coming out, and in this case, Ned Price through the, the State Department, and making up out of whole cloth claims of Russia's quote-unquote imperialist aims their their desire to reform and gather up the old Soviet Union and then expand throughout the the entirety uh, of the globe. This is the United States foreign policy. It's just he forgot to mention it's based on acquisition of resources uh, and exploitation of the local labor base. It, this is what we do historically. So of course they have to muddle the the meaning of course they have to say that uh any country with you know 80 to several hundred military bases surrounding it with missiles pointed directly at them going to send some troops uh in order to help uh support and recognize a declared independent republic is an imperialistic aim one of the things that I that would have really been humorous if it hadn't been so serious, uh, when uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was in Washington talking to Biden and they were having a press conference and somebody asked Biden, well, what about Nord Stream 2? And Biden said, oh, we're not going to turn that up. And then another reporter said, well, wait a minute, Mr. President, how are you going to prevent it? Oh, trust me, that's not going to get turned up. And just before that, Biden had been talking not about imperialism, <clears throat> but he had been talking about 
strong-armed, you know, leaders and calling calling Putin all of these names. And here is Biden standing there saying the United States is not going to allow Germany and Russia basically to finish their business deal. I mean, if that isn't uh, imperialist, if that if that isn't uh, over over uh, heavy handed, I don't know what is. Well, it's it's taking the role that any trade that occurs, no matter where it occurs, is under the United States purview. And the United States has been able to take this position because of what they've done largely militarily, what they've done with Julian Assange. They can now say, "Ah, well, the jurisdiction of, of the global press falls under the United States. And if they're just going to keep coming up and taking you know, things and and tenets that form free and fair societies and claiming international jurisdiction over it without anybody, certainly in the West, standing up to say, hey, wait, no, you're going to force other countries into the position that they're at right now, where Russia has rightfully said, okay, well, if you're not, if you're going to shut down Nord Stream, then we're going to stop giving Europe gas unless it buys in rubles. It's forced uh, Russia and China into much more of a partnership than they had previously. It's forced the Belt Road nations to go, hey, wait a minute, we have the real resources. Maybe we have more of a, a negotiating position than we thought. And all it's done in the long run, aside from, as we've talked about on this show, uh, as certainly with Garland here, the collapse of the EU um, is further entrench the the growing divide between what was you know the the u.s and russia and china in terms of diplomacy and any sort of agreements that they had i asked this question of dr david walalu a little earlier in the show because he was talking about behind closed doors there is a a growing chasm or schism uh, between the eu countries as it relates to the u.s sanctions and and how long they're willing to hold the line against Russia. And I asked uh, Dr. Walalu, well, when do you think those behind-the-door conversations are going to be made public? And he says, I doubt that they will because the European countries are so beholden to the United States. Your thoughts? Uh, as it be- as gas in Germany becomes more expensive, as the business interests in Germany are now complaining to Olaf Scholz, look, man, you're going to cause a catastrophic impact on our economy uh, when as France now is paying uh, exponentially higher prices for gas. When do you think or do you think that those some of those European governments are going to turn on the United States for their own interest? What? When uh, when the bills for the air conditioning come due. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, when, when, I mean, when, when the rubber really meets the road in terms of when the, the people in France or the people in Germany that, um, you know, let's be honest, we're not afraid of protest. We've been out, you know, pretty much consistently uh, through at least in France throughout the last several years, there was a, a break in the yellow vest during the earlier parts uh, of lockdown. Um, but they've been out fairly consistently since. Germans were out in the streets throughout most of 2021. Um, so these aren't people who who are are hesitant to take their cause into the street. 
So I think as soon as they they really see um, the price point double, triple, maybe quadruple, depending on how bad the crunch is, they're going to go, hey, wait a minute. Not only is this not sustainable, we we quite literally cannot in the moment do this. You uh, had your chance. Now it's ours. The United States got involved in Afghanistan and we were there for, what, 20, 22, 23 years, pumped a whole lot of money, pumped a whole lot of weapons into into that country. And from that, uh, al-Qaeda comes from the uh, Mujahideen. We're seeming to do a very similar thing in Ukraine. We're pumping a whole lot of money. We're pumping a whole lot of weapons into the country. What do you think happens to those weapons when the dust settles, uh, whether it's tomorrow or 15 years from now? What do you think happens to other than the, other than Russia blowing them up as they cross the border? But the weapons that successfully make it into the country, what do you think happens to those weapons? Whose hands do they wind up in and uh, whose interests or who, the, who do those weapons get pointed at? Um, as the Azov Brigade and the right sector get get better and better weapons from the United States? Well, and that's that's the question, isn't it? Because the U.S. certainly doesn't have the answer. They can't keep track of the shipments once they touch ground. We did a story on this on the AM Wake Up the other week where uh, there's zero accountability in Ukraine. And Ukraine was sort of set up as that state anyway. So now what we effectively have is, uh, <clears throat> you know, basically like a, an open air casino where, or an open air bazaar where anyone with weapons or humans or drugs or what have you, you know, the ability to commit cyber crimes, uh, it has different autonomous zones where they can operate. It's a, a just, you know, arguably the world's largest black market right now, mm-hmm. and there's zero accountability. So I, the answer, whose hands do they wind up in? I, whoever manages to get a hold of the shipment first and depending on who they sell it to, because really there is zero way of finding out until it's a little bit too late or until somebody embeds themselves with a group to do an expose. Or until an airliner gets taken down because one of these SAMs or, or, or one of these other type missiles finds their way into the wrong hands and they decide that they're going to uh, extract their pound of flesh by taking down some airliner. And there's going to be nothing but scores to settle for the next 20 or 30 years coming out of Ukraine. The Saker has a piece, Queen and King set out on the chessboard when a broken empire warns that geopolitics is back. We all know what that means. Uh, They write, it is clear that a new world will emerge from the current conflict in Ukraine, but this has been known since the Anglo-Saxon Bretton Woods system was declared bankrupt a good three years ago. Uh, so they don't believe there will be any major concessions at this stage of the game from either side and uh, who are fighting in Eastern Europe, neither from the Ukrainian pawns nor the smaller EU pieces. What do you think, Steve Poikinen, about who cries uncle? How does this thing get settled? Uh, and I, I, think it, I think it ultimately 
get settled with the U.S. doing what we have done with every conflict for the last 50 or 60 years that we have created, then cried foul against whatever nation state we we say that we're now having being forced to go in to defend the honor, liberty and or democracy of and then getting uh, bogged down into a waste of blood and treasure and at some point spiking the football, declaring victory and trying to melt away as quickly as possible without anyone catching the fact that the tail has been tucked between our legs. I don't know if we're going to be able to pull it off as uh, I'm, I, I don't know, I hesitate to use the word elegantly as we have in the past, but if that gives you any kind of idea of the bar where I'm setting it, um, it's the whole thing is going to look like uh, the collapse of Saigon, except for the people in the West are going to be feeling the impact of it in their towns. You cannot compete with real resources as a speculator class if you're not manipulating the currency. And we're seeing currency take a whole different direction with this now. So as the United States loses its control on manipulating world currency, and that falls into the hands of different actors and manipulators, it, the the real consequences uh, of trying to control an empire via asset speculation and resource acquisition is, is going to come full circle and be very, very evident in ways that people who are used to comfortability are not going to like at all. Is the United States going to have to put boots on the ground? Um, they want to really, really, really bad. Um, really, really, really bad. I hope not. But we've got uh, Anthony Blinken saying that this is going to go through the year. We've got other members of uh, both defense and state saying that, um, you know, they're committing more and more dangerous weapons we just sent ghost drones to accommodate the switchblade drones that we've already been sending these are acts of war wilmer i don't know any other way to to put it so if they're not talking about sending what do they call them special advisors right, right? or or to, you know a a special training yeah uh special training uh a group by the summer, I will be very surprised. As we hear about more and more weapons being sent in, you know, I'm getting the sense that the Ukrainians, with the exception of the Nazis in Ukraine, are getting fed up with this. And so I think they're run, kind of running out of people uh, unless other people are conscripted uh, into fighting this fight. As far as conscripted, I mean, we've always had a poverty draft. We've always had waved, waved uh, better life in the hands in front of you know, poor children just to, to get them to go fight. Conscription, uh, it, it'll it look like the gig economy rather than conscription. That would be my, my analysis. Steve Poikinen, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Thank you, Wilmer. Folks, you have been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing my voice into your space. I hope you were informed and enlightened, and I look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. I'm out.